Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Uh, good morning or good evening. My name is Sam Rigol. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Sunrise Energy Metals. Uh, Sunrise is an ASX-listed company. Uh, our co-chairman, uh, Robert Friedland, is uh, uh, very familiar to those who invest or participate in the mining industry. Um, we are a, um, a company that has a long history in mining and mining technologies, particularly around hydrometallurgy. Uh, we've built a number of hydromet plants for companies uh, all over the world. Uh, but in the last uh, uh, 10, 10 years, we have decided to focus our efforts at applying our technologies to actual mineral development. And in doing so, we've built um, what we consider to be uh, a world-class uh, team in, uh, with a mining background. And uh, our key asset is the Sunrise Battery Materials Project in Australia. Uh, this is Australia's largest integrated battery materials project. Uh, it's focused uh, very much on battery grade nickel and cobalt and also scandium. So in the long term, our mission is to be able to sustainably deliver high quality battery materials to a decarbonising planet. Fantastic. Nice to meet you, Sam. How are you? Very well, Matthew. Thank you. But, but you're in lockdown. Yeah, I'm in 14 days of isolation, unfortunately. You've got to tell people this one because this, this, we're starting to get a bit crazy here. Go on. Why are you in 14 days uh, lockdown? For those of you in, in the UK who think uh, you've got it bad, we, have, um, we had a few cases at my children's school, which has now put uh, every staff member, student, and all of their family contacts into 14 days of isolation at home. So, um, look, this is happening everywhere in the world, but it is pretty, pretty, particularly harsh in Australia. Yeah, you, you're saying there's a few, a few thousand people that those few cases have uh, oh, yeah, caused to go into, lock, in, into self-isolation. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, well, well done, the governments around the world. It's uh, <laughs> getting. It's it's a little, a little, it is a little little bit um, oppressive, I think, in Australia. I think by, by comparison to here, where we've been set free in the streets. It's free, it was Freedom Day yesterday. Sam, what do you think well, of that? So Congratulations nice. on your freedom. You've worked hard for it, um, but we still have a, an elimination strategy here in Australia, so we're, we're paying the price for that. Well, okay. Well, look, um, Sam, Ed, first time we've met, first time we've spoken, uh, I was quite keen to talk about um, this, um, trying to understand what it is that you're building there, um, especially with the team that you've assembled. Can we go back a bit, though, and just talk through the history and the, the kind of the, the spin-out, as it were, and to, you know, what you did before and why the need for change? Because I'm interested in, you know, business plans, strategies. Why, why did you do that? Sure. So uh, those of you who have followed the, the nickel thematic or cobalt thematic for some time will, uh, may recall that Sunrise Energy Metals used to be called Cleantech, Cleantech Holdings. Uh, Cleantech had a 25-year history on the Australian Stock Exchange providing mining technologies for clients. So we used to build hydromet plants. Um, we used to build uh, water treatment plants. Basically anything that required separation or extraction of metals or pollutants, uh, we provided a technology solution for. And, and our key technology was around ion exchange. Um, we used resins, uh, polymer beads, to, um, to attract either metals or pollutants out of solutions. So. It has a significant application in metal hydromet applications. You can use it in water treatment. We used it in air treatment for some applications. 
Um, so that's where our, our technology background came from. Um, we built a number of these plants, as I said, for clients. Uh, but in about 2013, we acquired the Sunrise uh, Nickel Cobalt Project in Australia. This is a very large laterite project. Uh, in fact, there's about a million tonnes of nickel in the resource and about um, uh, 300,000 tonnes uh, of cobalt uh, in the resource. So it's uh, extremely large. In fact, it's the largest cobalt resource in the world outside the DRC. Um, and our objective was to apply the best hydrometallurgical technology to find a way to produce high-spec nickel and cobalt uh, metals, uh, and principally chemicals. Because back then we could see very clearly that the world was gonna uh, need a significant shift from what was um, markets that were focused on stainless steel industries and principally small-scale batteries into something that required high-grade and high-specification metals. In our case, either sulfates or precursors for batteries. Can I ask you about CleanSight? Did the model work? It, it worked as well as an engineering model works. So um, it, it, it required building a good, competent engineering team. Uh, it required building a pipeline of projects and it required keeping work flowing through the organisation. But it's a cost plus margin model. Um, we did a significant amount of work on nickel and cobalt extraction in the early 2000s with BHP and Vale. Um, and in particular with those two companies, we developed and filed for all the patents that relate to nickel and cobalt extraction using ion exchange. And that was basically the foundation for the decision uh, in the early uh, 2010, 2013 period to acquire our, our, our own asset and use the technology for um, developing our own uh, resource. Right, and so th that IP still resides with you? I mean, what, what was actually spun out? Yeah, so we, we own all of the intellectual property um, that was generated through that BHP Vale clean tech joint venture, anything that relates to nickel, cobalt, or scandium extraction. Um, we also, as, as I alluded to before, developed a, a water treatment business, which also uses ion exchange as the technology platform. As of about two weeks ago, we demerged that business from our group that's now a separately listed ASX company and trading very well. Uh, so all that's left now in Sunrise Energy Metals is the Sunrise Project in New South Wales. Got it. Okay. I'm, so I'm just trying to get the mindset of, of the management team because you know, clean tech for a while, as you say, it's, it's, it's a cost plus exercise with that no, no real scalability to it in, in that sense. So with the, with the water treatment component, is there any sort of residual benefit? I know it's been spun out. Do you hold shares in that entity? Is there any revenue due? So our, our shareholders um, on the demerger received a, sh uh, a share in uh, Sunrise Energy Metals and a share in Cleantech Water. Um, so yes, uh, our investors still are exposed to both assets, but they're now freely tradable between the two asset classes. Okay, um, and, and the, 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 the water treatment component, it's a kind of cost plus type business going forward, yeah? Yes. Right, okay. Yes. Okay. So we want to focus on, 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 on this. We want to focus on, on nickel, copper, and scandium um, because that's, that's where the growth is. So um, what exactly have you got today? What does it look like today? And how much money has been invested up until this point? As I said, we acquired the project back in about 2013, 14. Um, uh, the, since that time, we've um, invested an awful lot of energy uh, with a very large team going through our, our phases of study, so through PFS, bankable study. And late last year, we delivered what we call the project execution plan. That's 
effectively the final piece of study and engineering work for delivery of the project. That includes a lot of the early engineering that's required for, uh, for construction. Uh, all up, the, the project's had about 250 million Australian invested uh, to get to this point today. Um, so there's a significant amount of capital already invested uh, in, in making sure that we deliver it well. Um, there's not much more to do uh, on studies, piloting, engineering uh, for now. Really, the focus has turned now to the financing for the project. Um, and that, that's really where I'm spending most of my efforts on, on getting the, uh, the project uh, financed. How much cash have you got uh, at the moment? Uh, there's about a bit over 40 million Aussie in the bank. Right, 40 million Aussie, you spent 250 million, market cap at 160, 165 million. So the market's not giving you much credit for what you've done to date, are they? No, nothing. And, uh, uh, you know, I think as if I reflect back on, um, you know, how the market views this, there's probably a lot of um, uh, questioning about whether we can get this project financed. As I said, it's the largest integrated battery materials project in Australia. Um, the, the project execution plan came out with a capital estimate of about 1.8 billion US to build. Um, in terms of the financing work we've been doing, um, th there's probably 50 to 60% gearing available for this project. And we've worked closely with a consortium of international banks. So we're roughly targeting about a billion US of debt, which leaves about 800 uh, US of equity to raise. Um, I'm, you know, I, People worry about that 800 of equity. I'm, I'm not so worried myself. Um, I guess in terms of my career, I spent probably 15 years of my life in Rio Tinto, working in a range of roles. Um, I was the mining executive for their industrial minerals business for a while. Uh, I led the negotiations on Oyotolgoi in Mongolia, where we, we've raised sort of $8 billion across the journey to build something in Central Asia. I worked at Ivanhoe Mines, where we've built sort of Kamara and Kakula in Africa, uh, again, um, multi-billion dollar investment. So I think to raise 800 million for what's gonna be one of the largest integrated battery material plants in the world is not going to be a stretch, but there's no doubt there are dynamics playing out in this market at the moment in terms of timing that, that sort of we need to work through. Um, to give you a sense, I guess, of the, the, the project, um, it has a 50 year resource life um, at least. And so, um, a lot of the production will be uh, nickel sulfate and cobalt sulfate with the option to convert to precursor. Uh, we're targeting about a bit over 20,000 tonnes a year of contained nickel and sulfate and about uh, four to 5,000 tonnes a year contained cobalt and sulfate. Um, on average, over the first 25 years, the project will generate a bit over 300 million US in cash flow. So um, you know, it, it will be a good cash generator and it'll have a payback of about five years. So with, with an NPV of around about 1.2 billion US, it is, um, you know, it's got robust economics and it'll be a very valuable project once it's financed and built. But your balance sheet is not a Rio Tinto, it's not a BHP. That, that, that's prob and, and, you can, yeah, and it's all well and good having Robert Friedland in, in the back pocket, but I think people want to see I guess some some movement from you as to how you're going to move this forward. Where's the money coming from? Is it coming from Europe? Is it going to come from Australia? I mean, who, who are you talking so, to? Yeah, it's never been our intention to try and fund this off our balance sheet. Um, it, it, the, the numbers, as you as you know, just don't make sense today. What we will have to do is find the strategic partner that fits into the development plan. And for us, 
that makes a lot of sense on such a long-lived asset. You know, I've, I've had to come to this sector from very large mining organisations who actually have no constraints on capital and think very hard about how we set this up for success. Um, so I spend a lot of time in the auto industry working with automakers, with battery manufacturers um, and mining companies. But ultimately, that equity um, gap will be bridged by a strategic partner who will bring the, the capital to build it. Okay, fantastic. And do you think in terms of um, your share register, in fact, how does your share register break down in terms of institutional retail, so, uh, et cetera? Yeah, so our, our, about 25% of our, our shares are held uh, by two individuals. Robert Friedland owns about half of that, about 13%. And a company called Shanghai Pengshin Mining out of uh, China uh, owns another 12%. Uh, and then uh, in terms of institutional support, um, Fidelity um, uh, Management Research out of Boston, um, Australian Super uh, in Australia, uh, GMO, uh, again, out of the US, um, and uh, quite a large institutional investor out of Israel is also on the register. So um, probably between the 20 largest shareholders, we've got probably half the, the register. Right, okay. And do you, so where do you think the disconnect is? Do you think it's retail not understanding Scandium market, cobalt market, and not hearing the sorts of noises they want with regards to your ability to bring a strategic partner on board? Yeah, I, I, look, to be honest, uh, my focus hasn't really been on the equity markets for the last two years. It's been with the industry partners that we're going to have to build the relationships with. Maybe I'm a terrible marketer, uh, but um, you know, my view is that once you have this project funded and financed, most of those issues will resolve themselves. And um, you know, I, don't, I don't see there being actually much risk to getting this financed. When you look at the, the, I guess, the demand profile for the amount of nickel and cobalt that's going to have to be produced to, to fill this supply chain over the next few years, there are probably only a handful of projects you can count that are ready to build. Um, in fact, probably Sunrise is the only one that's ready to go as of today. Um, there are lots sort of being promoted in you know, in North America, uh, there's some interesting developments in Europe around lithium in particular, uh, but none of them have the scale to solve the problem that is coming. This is part of the issue when you speak to the, the market about this, that there's no shortage of people trying to promote projects, but very few of them can actually make a meaningful dent in this supply demand gap that we're going to see in the next few years. This just happens to be one of them. Um, you have to tip your hat to China. They've probably been the first to understand this and they're pouring probably somewhere between 10 to $12 billion into Indonesia at the moment trying to build new nickel cobalt capacity. Um, and that's, that's terrific. I, I have some hesitation. They're doing it very, very quickly. And um, I think that the litmus test will come when they actually have to turn these projects on and see how well they work. But, but for now, China has recognised that if... You want nickel and cobalt and you want an electric vehicle industry, you need to get very, very good at nickel hydromet because that is the only source of material volume you're going to get in the future. Okay. Let's come back to that in a second. So can you just um, define what, what nickel hydromet is for, for people who perhaps have not heard that phrase before? Yeah, sure. So um, you can categorise nickel deposits into two categories. You've got your nickel sulphide resources. They've been the, the typical mainstay of industry supply for 50 or 60 years, uh, and uh, they, they typically rely on a smelting and a refining process, which is pyrometallurgical. You basically burn the ore down, tap the slag, take the, um, the concentrate, whether it's in the form of a mat, 
and then refine it into an LME grade nickel. Um, Hydromet's very diff different. You have nickel laterite resources, uh, which also um, conveniently happen to contain generally a lot of cobalt as well. Um, and the way that you remove or extract um, the, the payable metal in those resources is to leach them. You, you use hydrometallurgy, so you use acid. Uh, you put the metals into solution and you usually do this at high temperature and at high pressures. Um, and once the metal is in solution, you have a variety of processing routes to then extract it once, once it's there. So in our case, we'll use ion exchange. You can quite easily use um, countercurrent decantation and solvent extraction. Um, but the difference here is there's no pyramid, it's all hydromet, and uh, you can do some quite novel and interesting things once you're in the, the world of hydromet, which can cater specifically to the high spec materials you need to produce at the other end which aren't always necessarily available to you with pyramid roots. Yeah, interesting. We, 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 held, we held a, sort of a couple of days of nickel um, uh, conversations a few weeks back, and it's sort of interesting how the different companies are coming at it. And I think, I just wonder, you said, okay, I know you said it jokingly, and perhaps you know, you're not so strong on, on the marketing side, but you're going to have to G the market up because whatever price you do any deal with any strategic partner, you're going to want, to drive the share price up well before those conversations get, get meaningful, aren't you? Um, and do you think you're being sort of slightly hampered by the fact that there are a lot of small juniors talking the talk with an inability to actually get things over the line and that perhaps the market's a little bit tired of that? It's hard to differentiate between what, what good looks like and what not so good looks like. Yeah, look, um, I mean, in my experience in the mining industry, um, doesn't matter how good the jockeys are if they're, if they're riding a donkey you're not going to win Ascot and um, that's that's generally the case with almost every project I've seen in my career so it, it's quite hard amongst all the noise to differentiate the quality of projects um, you can look to grade you can look to scale you can look to location you can look to processing routes to try and work it out um, but look it's a very crowded market um, and, and you get that message very clearly from the automakers when you when you speak to them. You know they they're inundated with offers of assistance from almost everyone around the globe about how they can solve their raw material problems. But in the end, as I say, if you want to deliver a solution that is meaningful in in these supply chains, you're going to have to look at at resources that have scale. Um, you're going to have to look at these oxide resources, the laterites because they are probably the only source of nickel and cobalt material that can generate the sorts of volumes that this industry will need over the next one to two decades. Um, so to the point about, I guess, our share price, um, the, 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 I guess the, the key thing for me in thinking about how this gets financed is it will get done with an industrial partner. We need that partner on board. The question just is how much of the project you give up to get that partner on board. That, that's, that's the equation. Now, most of the partners who go through extensive due diligence, um, they bring advisors on to understand the quality and, and, and the value of the asset, understand that it's not reflected completely in our share price at all in our share price. And therefore, we, we have to have that discussion. Um, but once that is in place, uh, the share price will resolve itself. That is not going to be a problem. So um, look, I'm as I say, I'm not too worried about that. I, in my discussions that I'm having so far, uh, both with industrial partners and, and mining groups, people understand the value of this asset very well. Maybe the retail market doesn't, but 
but certainly the industry does. But explain how something like that could be constructed, okay? Because the automotive companies, they're not miners. They don't want the risk of going to, you know, um, upstream as it were. Um, they want the output. So they're prepared to give, you know, offtake contracts, presumably. Um, or have you thought about it a different way? I mean, how, how, how do you um, construct something like that? How do you get, you know, some sort of competitive tension between companies? Will there be multiple part strategic partners? I mean, how, how does it work? Yeah, the the, um, the the I guess the contrast with the way China approaches this is very interesting. So when you go to China to have this discussion with potential partners in the supply chain, you sit across the table from the automaker, the battery manufacturer, the cathode supplier. Almost everyone is sitting across the other end of the table. You do that in the West, and it's it's, it's very disjointed and fragmented. Um, so there's a degree of coordination across the supply chain that has to be worked through here because this is a new supply chain. It hasn't existed before. Uh, it, it's very different to what the auto industry is used to with components. It's not a component. We're talking raw materials that have their own individual supply risk, but also their pricing risk. So in fact, pricing for these metals is probably the far bigger risk that this automotive industry faces. Um, so we, when we have the discussion with the automakers, you, you hit the nail on the head. They have a very large uh, risk aversion to being in raw materials. They, they don't understand the industry. Um, they see ESG risks written all over it. And probably more importantly, most of their balance sheet is already committed to working with what they know, having to retool their plants, having to think about how far downstream into battery production they're going to go. Um, you know, they are pretty well maxed out at the moment. So when you talk to them, they don't want to be equity partners in a mine and take mine responsibility. And no matter how much you hear, I guess, media or industry pundits saying, you know, auto industry ready to invest in mining, maybe, but I think in terms of large scale investment, you're looking at some way out at the moment. So what we're seeing at the moment as we engage with the supply chain is that there is at least now in the West some desire to bring multiple parties to the table to talk about how risk can be shared, but it's not through ownership. It's, it's through structures like prepayments for metal. It's through structures like metal streaming. Uh, it's, it's ways that they don't own an interest in the mine, but that they can put their foot on the materials and if they can, also try and hedge some of that long-term pricing risk that they're facing. So that, those are the sorts of structures that we find are resonating quite well in the supply chain at the moment. And being able to offer 50 years of long-term supply sounds great, but you know a lot of these companies are also thinking about issues such as technical obsolescence. So what if there is new materials needed in a decade or two decades time? You know, what do we do then having invested? So. Those are the things we're methodically working through at the moment with the supply chain, but there's absolutely no doubt that they are looking for material beginning in 2025, 2026 today. That they're looking already at the, the numbers that are needed to, to feed into their, their auto supply chain, and the numbers are very, very large. Um, it's terrifying, in fact, when you, when you aggregate the numbers that are presented to you by most of the major car manufacturers about what their needs are going to be. Um, you know, the, the nickel industry in particular has never seen these rates of growth before. Yeah, so no, I, I get the, the, the delta between supply demand across the board for battery metals. Um, and, and the question is, you know, are the estimates correct in terms of 
uh, those those timelines projecting out because every single automotive company we speak to it needs this stuff now, wants to tie this down now. So you, you sort of embraced something which I thought was quite interesting. And with with regards to um, obsolescence, what are you hearing about cobalt? Because you know, there's a kind of narrative running through um, the market at the moment saying, "Well, you know, cobalt is being phased out of batteries." Do you think that's true? Uh, yeah, it has been. I mean, the, the uh, historic numbers show that the industry has been very successful in thrifting cobalt, uh, but they haven't eliminated it, and it's unlikely that they will eliminate it unless they go to a fundamentally different cathode chemistry like lithium iron phosphate. Now, the, the trade-offs with LFP are well known. You probably take a 30% hit in um, energy density, and on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis, you probably end up paying um, slightly more than you would for a, a good quality um, NMC811 chemistry anyway. So if range is an issue for the end consumer, then the cathode, cathode choice becomes very important. All of the feedback we have from the industry is that you, you won't see the complete elimination of cobalt. It will have a place. It will probably be by weight somewhere between 6 and 8% of the cathode. Um, and the industry can now deal with that. To, to put it in context, um, we've got to a thrifting point now where a 10% increase in the nickel price has a four time greater impact on the final cost of the delivered battery than an equivalent 10% increase in the cobalt price. So nickel is by far a bigger risk in the economics of a battery than cobalt is today. Um, all of the issues around ESG, um, the Congo, child labour, I think over time will be resolved. I think the auto industry has been very good at, at applying, um, you know, good, honest supply chain practices to their, their supply chains. And I think in, in time, you'll see that part of it cleaned up. And look, to be honest, you want to see the DRC benefit from this. This is some of the most, or some of the poorest communities in the world that, that depend on this industry for their livelihoods. So you want to see that work. I think the last point on cobalt, though, that people overlook is that if you want a recycling industry, you need to have cathodes with cobalt in them because if you don't have cobalt, there's no economic incentive to recycle. Um, and people forget that the recycling industry makes its, its margins on payable metals in the material it processes. As soon as you remove cobalt and go to an LFP, uh, there's just no economic justification for recycling batteries anymore. Surely that's got to be price dependent. I mean, so we, I think expectations are that uh, nickel prices will continue to rise. We've we've seen a, an Aussie company spin out a nickel asset recently, um, but the CEO's being quite honest. Said, you know, this won't work until we get twenty five thousand dollar nickel. That's obviously not quite there yet. Um, you know, so I think I think it's kind of interesting. But one, it's a refreshingly honest approach about these things. But with regards to recycling, do you, do you think that that prices will just go up? Won't they? It'll solve that problem. Recycling is not going to solve the bigger problem. You know, you you can expect recycling streams maybe to add ten percent to growth in demand um, in the long run. Uh, if, if you consider a battery has maybe a ten year. Um, uh, useful life in a car and then it's repurposed for something else. But um, recycling is not going to solve the problem. But the EU, as you know, probably as many of your listeners, listeners know, are mandating minimum recycle content in batteries. So no matter what the economic um, 
outcome is. You're going to have to have recycled materials somewhere in your supply chain. That, that's why in our project, we're, assu we're assuming we're going to have to install a recycling circuit in the refinery. So our refinery will take back spent cathode and we will re-pull the metal using ion exchange and, and just mix it with our, our ore-based nickel and cobalt materials to get that recycled content. Okay. Um, so with regards to how, how you move things forward, I mean, when are you going to be able to talk to the market about uh, financing? Um, when, when Are we going to see something this year? That, that would be my hope. And look, discussions are progressing. Um, there's, there's still a, a lot of interest in this project, uh, just, just given its scale and what it can offer. So um, my expectations would be that once we can get the equity in place, the debt will follow quite quickly. And then you're roughly a couple of months away from turning first soil on the project. All the environmental permitting is done, uh, the mining lease is granted, the development consent is in place. So it's, it's a relatively quick step into uh, early construction. Okay, yeah, I mean, I haven't spent too much time talking about the project because you know, you're, you're, you're well past the point of um, needing to kind of pr prove through studies what you've got. So, um, well, look, Sam, I mean, great to um, catch up with you today and sort of look, hear the story and you kind of... You've got a little a little task ahead of you. I look forward to um, hearing how you get on. I mean, stay in touch and um, let, let us know. Thanks, Matt. Um, if I could just wrap up and just note that, um, as I've said, this is a very unique project. It's located in a very safe jurisdiction. Uh, it has a 50-year mine life. Uh, it is going to be producing high-spec nickel and cobalt for the battery industry. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about, which is extremely important, and it's always probably the second issue raised by the industry after cost is the environmental credentials of these projects. Um, and we've done a lot of work in benchmarking this asset on a life cycle analysis. So for us, the carbon footprint, water consumption, waste management, all feature extremely prominently in the financing decisions, whether it's debt or equity, and a strategic partner needs to know what the details of those are even before you get to square one. So. That's been an extremely important piece of work for us. Um, our, our background, as I said, is in technology uh, for our company. And in the long run, we expect that this assets like this will actually have a lot of optionality value around going further downstream, whether you're looking at precursor or cathode, or as I said earlier, maybe even being a, a dedicated recycling facility for secondary material. So, um, you know, I encourage people to, to think really hard about the sorts of materials the world is going to need uh, in this de decarbonisation phase we're inevitably going to enter into in the next couple of decades. It's going to be assets like this uh, that are going to have to be brought on stream and it, we're going to have to become very, very competent at building them and showing that we can actually do Hydromet very, very well. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.